When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Reflecting on this, I decided to follow her advice, and I noticed profound changes in my own dogs. Enhanced energy, healthier skin, and an overall younger demeanor. It's truly heartwarming to see them so vibrant and full of life. Go to badlandsfood.com hometown and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash hometown. I remember the first time I tried to visit the French family grave, just outside of Wabash, Indiana. It was a Sunday, in the middle of winter, one day before the mini-blizzard that closed county schools and buried every car on Market Street up to its door handles. I had just moved to town, and I was feeling the things you feel when you move someplace new. I was wondering if the people were nice, and I thought of the friends I hoped to make. And I hoped that Wabash was a good place to call home. Because it was a weekend, I spent the day alone in my new studio downtown. I thought of the French family, who had moved here like I had, 168 years earlier. They were new in town when they arrived on a wagon in the spring of 1854, and I realized they must have felt some of what I had. They must have sat here alone, at least in the beginning, and wondered what life in Wabash would be like. They must have been uncertain and hopeful. Six months later, they were all dead. Their heads were smashed, one by one, from the youngest infant, 18 months old, to the parents, Aaron and Sarah. Wabash was a canal town at the time, and what is known as a floating or transient population. People came and went according to whatever work was available and it was not unusual for a family to arrive one week and disappear the next. 
So when the Frenches quietly disappeared on the night of October 7th, 1854, it was not as alarming as it sounds. To get a better sense of just how transient the Wabash population was at the time, I sat down with local historian T.J. Honeycutt from the Wabash County Museum, who first brought this story to my attention. In our modern world, we picture small towns, and particularly really small towns, say under 400 people, as static. There aren't a lot of people coming and going. Usually the people have lived there a very long time, or they have ties that bring you in. That's not the case in this. You have a couple of different classes of people who are trying to make it in the West, and they're either coming through to head further West, and they may only be here a couple of days, or they're going to work here where it's relatively more developed for a little bit while they're using this as a base to go even further west and find claims out in, say, Illinois or Missouri or Nebraska. That was super common here as well, where I'm going to live here for a couple of years and move on. If you're engaged in a business, you're probably going to congregate to larger cities. But if there's a niche that you can fill, you're going to show up and be a blacksmith in Wabash for a bit before you accrue enough capital to open up a shop in Fort Wayne or Marion. So there's that whole population as well. The canal in particular brought a lot of people through the community who are either using the canal to get to a different location or who are somehow associated with work on the canal, who would be private contractors that are moving through. Small towns are not static. You might have that core of people who are the early or large landowners who probably aren't going to move, but then everyone else is kind of fair game to change. In the pioneer days, small Midwestern towns like Wabash were almost like rest stops or fueling stations on the long journey west. Outside of the core landowners, these populations would fluctuate with an unusual amount of turnover. Also, you have just the danger of an unsupervised population. So we have this conception of the Wild West, and Indiana was at this time in history very much the West. There wasn't a great deal of legal authority around. Society as we kind of know it didn't really exist. People were very interdependent upon each other in a sort of local context. Where the Frenches were living is a community called Rich Valley. Rich Valley actually has a longer history than the rest of the community because a treaty happened basically as soon as the state of Indiana existed that the Miami Indians could have a mill built anywhere they wanted at government expense and would be operated at government expense. And they brought in a miller and a blacksmith and they chose Rich Valley, basically, as the location. So there had already been a community there for a while. Then the Frenches move in, and one of the early families had already built a number of houses throughout the area. They were usually pretty rudimentary. The way these early villages and neighborhoods were built was not so different from the way housing developments were built today. Settlers would sometimes build up an area in order to bring more action and neighbors into the areas in which they had chosen to live. This would not only increase the value of their own property, but also provide a sense of community and a group of people who could help each other navigate the harsh frontier. Another common practice was trading in and out of homes in these new areas, in a pattern very similar to our modern trend of house flipping. 
the French were living in something like a frontier starter home. Sort of the routine at the time is you would come to a place, cut down all the trees and start your farm. But then as you got a little bit of income, you would build a frame or brick house, but that log cabin is still there, so they would rent it out. And that's essentially what had happened with the the French's house, is it was somebody's first starter home, and then they were making income off of continuing to rent it out. The farmland that Aaron French would have farmed is kind of the same setup. His landlord essentially was operating a farm in the area, but they had cordoned off a little area around their original homestead. Your original settler will come in, gird the trees, build their house, and then normally move on, do something else, and rent their original property, or sell out and move west and do the whole thing over again. That was a whole career path. If you were the true pioneer, you're going to set it up and get everything working out, and then you've improved the land now, you sell it and move on. Or you'd sit on it, rent it, and move somewhere else. When the original owners of the cabin moved out, the Frenches moved in. They were basically squatting in someone else's hand-me-down home. We don't know the exact terms of that agreement, but we know they were living on someone else's land, either at a reduced rate or free of charge. In 1840, Wabash County had roughly 1,400 residents. By 1854, there were more than 10 times that many, just over 14,000. The main reason for all of this sudden growth was the construction of a new commercial waterway right through the center of town just two blocks south of the courthouse. In part, it has to do with the canal opening more fully. The original objective of the canal was to open a commercial route to New Orleans or the Atlantic Ocean through the Great Lakes. And that took a long, long time to complete. And it was more fully functional by the 1840s. It still really didn't get done for another several decades and then basically as soon as they completed it they closed it because the railroad took over that boom happened in part because you had commercial access to the canal eventually the canal was replaced by a railroad track but the nearest road in downtown wabash which i live on is still called canal street i asked tj what downtown wabash would have looked like at the time It would look like your image of Wild West Town. You've got a couple of stone buildings, probably, but a lot of kind of thrown together wooden buildings spread all throughout. And then some brick houses and some frames and even still some log cabins in place or even more rudimentary kind of shanties. Another weird thing that you would notice right away is that there's this weird marriage between urban and rural that we just don't have now. Maybe you'll find somebody who lives in town that keeps chickens or pigeons maybe in a larger city. That was super common then, where you would just have pigs roaming through the streets and they would be tagged and you knew that was the guy who lived two streets up's pig and it was expected that you wouldn't interfere with its business (laughs) and that if it got too far afield you would help kind of corral it back to his house so you have this weird intermix where you have a downtown city center that's like a couple of blocks of maybe brick but probably mostly wood business buildings and horses and carriages and so forth and then farm all intermingled with it. The community of Rich Valley, in which the Frenches lived, 
a few miles down the canal, would have been a slightly smaller version of downtown. Rich Valley would be the same deal. Rich Valley's town had several large business buildings. I don't think any of them are really still there. The other thing that you would see is your social centers. We often portray this Western life as being very isolated and the pioneers is very self-reliant, but that's not really the case. You absolutely relied on your neighbors to help you do major building projects or if you needed medicine that maybe so-and-so has it. Public school, as we know it today, simply didn't exist. A member of the community might volunteer to teach for a six-week period in an abandoned building, but that was about it. So the French children would have spent most of their time helping on the farm and hanging out around town. Generally, children in this era would either be engaged in farm labor or other kinds of labor tasks around. Another thing that's pretty commonly remarked on by diarists in this era is that children basically were just in the street. They were just kind of out doing whatever kids did at that time because they weren't heavily supervised. That was considered normal and safe, that you had the kids just out in the streets. That even carries on in this community into the 40s. Schools would just close at, say, noon. They would lock the kids out, and they would just roam the streets for an hour and a half, and it was expected that everything would be fine. And by 40s, he means the 1940s. So you know in the 1850s, it was a total free-for-all. The only real restriction of the freedom of the French children would have been the demands of farm life. For the French family, when they were farming it, it would be farm life as normal. And in some ways, it may have even been easier than some of the earlier children who had to pioneer and maybe sleep in a tent for a couple of weeks when they first got here. The expectation would be, since they're renting that property, the record doesn't really show that there were outbuildings and things, but I would be almost certain that there's like a chicken coop or some kind of building near the house from the ag aspect of that farm. You've got some infrastructure in place, and they're responsible for taking care of the farm. The male children would generally be involved in the harder tasks. I don't want to get too strict on gender roles in this era, because that's another thing that we sort of have a weird conception about, that women were absolutely always in the home in this period. It's portrayed that way in literature, but that's not practical. Women would learn how to harness the horses and plow the fields and all the stuff as needed. For the French children, they would definitely be helping out their mom and dad with the various tasks. Aaron's health wasn't great, so I assume there's a probability that either his wife, the neighbors, and their children, and his children are heavily engaged in the business of trying to make the farm work. And that's horse and plow-based agriculture or mules. Your chickens and so on are a primary source of reliable food. The other thing that we really don't think about is we're used to, even if you're desperately poor today, you're not going to go days without eating. And in this period, you may go several weeks where you're not eating regularly, either because you don't have it or something went wrong. So chickens and that sort of thing are incredibly valuable because it's a pretty reliable source of protein and food. And in the French family's case, it's discussed by the bystanders. Once Aaron's health got really bad, they started taking charity from the people around them, which was normal in the period. If a family was down and out or having a hard time, the neighbors would pitch in to plow the fields or take in the harvest and make sure that things were still okay. I don't think you could rely on that arrangement in perpetuity, but 
since Aaron's health had gotten bad, the local people had helped him out the year prior and the year of in 1854 to help get the harvest in and put it out and all the same. So the kids would probably be enlisted even more heavily in that than normal. The other thing to mention is just how labor-intensive life in general is. People generally only had one or two sets of clothes. In order to launder it, you had to do all kinds of weird things to it where you've got to wash it a certain way and hit the soap out of it because you can't dry it correctly. And agriculture is all by hand. Tons of hand tools. It takes forever. You're scything all your wheat by hand. Just tons and tons of work throughout the whole day just to make basic changes to your life. And also, food preservation is super important, so everyone's participating in very labor-intensive things basically all the time. As TJ mentioned, the original buildings of Rich Valley are gone, but a small cemetery remains, and the Frenches are buried there. I found its location on Google Maps, but when I reached the marker, I couldn't find any driveway. Eventually, I just pulled off alongside an empty field. As I did, I saw a man from a neighboring house getting his mail in my rearview mirror. When I asked about the cemetery, he pointed deep in the woods behind his house to a hill on the other side of a small ravine. I could see a low, snaggletoothed clearing of gray headstones scattered in the haphazard way of old cemeteries. But the only way to get there, he said, was through another neighbor's driveway, about a quarter of a mile away. It was an older woman, and I would need her permission, he warned, as access was possible only through private property. I knocked, but she wasn't home. Not wanting to make my first impression in Wabash by trespassing, I reluctantly turned back. The next day it snowed, and it didn't stop until the following weekend. So for the rest of that week, I sat in my empty studio, in my empty building, on an empty street, in this empty town, thinking about the French family on their secluded hill a few miles away. The oldest was John, aged 13, then Sarah, 11, Louisa, 8, Tillman, 6, and then an infant girl of about 15 months. I know what it's like growing up sleeping rough in central Indiana, and I thought of these kids in the summer of 1854. I imagine they spent their days holding the farm together and trying to make friends as all kids do. They must have laid awake at night, listening to the crickets and the roar of cicadas that every Indiana resident knows too well. They must have dreamed of something better. By the time I finally made it to the cemetery, a few weeks later, the snow had melted. Impatient from weeks of waiting, I just parked along the road and decided to walk through the woods. It's typical Indiana brushland, a low scraggle of light green foliage and thin, bent gray limbs. A narrow creek winds along the edge of it, bubbling softly, almost politely, in a familiar Midwestern way. According to TJ, the cemetery itself is typical too. It is a really great example of a pioneer era cemetery. It's something that we don't think about. We have access to Google. You can ask it any question. They had textbooks on how to do these sorts of things, how to set up your log cabin, how to set up your early farm, because maybe you had learned, but it's good to have a reference work with better ideas. And as a result, these pioneer era cemeteries are almost always built along a creek, and they're usually on an elevated area. Although the theory of disease wasn't what it is today, they knew that you wanted an elevated zone with good drainage for your burying place. 
And the Rich Valley Cemetery fits that to a T. It's on an elevated area. It's kind of out of the way. There's not going to be a lot of activity around it. And today it's wooded on all sides. They probably cut every tree down when they built it. So all the timber there is new. But it's up on this elevated area. The creek is right behind it and basically like hugs like two thirds of the thing, I would say. So that way you don't need it really fenced in. It's got a natural setup there. And most of the names in that cemetery are the Keller family, who were some of the first people ever to be brought in. They were actually the first marriage in the county was a Keller. So they are very early and well represented throughout there. But it sort of in the modern conception of a cemetery, it doesn't fit anymore. It's not excessively large it's very small most of the stones were probably made by somebody in rich valley who's pretty local at the far back of the cemetery at the edge of the hill over the ravine you find the french family stones behind a small 19th century stone roughly the size of a large textbook you find a much larger one erected in the last 10 years each stone represents the whole family as they are all buried here in a single grave together It's a quiet, secluded, shaded area, as good as any in the area for a final resting place. But this is not the location of their original burial. Their first resting place was in a hastily dug shallow grave, in which they were stacked, one on top of the other, by their murderer. The New York Times described it like this. Their skulls were all broken in, and the legs of the old man French and his wife were broken so that they could be doubled up and forced into the hole which was three or four feet deep. They were laid in a heap, the father and mother at the bottom, and the children on top. There were three girls and two boys. The children were much decayed, but the parents were still sound, and were easily recognized by those who had known them. For as much trouble as it was to find the Frenches, I didn't have to seek out the grave for the man convicted of their murder. I've mentioned him before. His name is John Hubbard. His head is on a shelf in my studio along with the rest of his body, in a glass case under lock and key. He moved into the French house one day as a boarder, shortly before the French family mysteriously moved out. They were never heard from again. 